I heard a radio interview this week with Linda K. Klein. It was remarkable on many levels. Linda Kay is a writer, speaker, a theology graduate. Her latest book is entitled Pure, in which she takes on the fundamentalist purity culture in which she grew up. Like many of us, her early religious experiences were in a sheltered, small-town repressive bubble. And one of the most squashed areas of her life was in relation to her sexuality, especially sexuality as it pertained to all women. You see, she was taught that boys and men were weak, cursed as they were with all of this sexual desire, and it was the young lady's responsibility to keep the boys in check, at least that's what she was taught. Boys will be boys, you know, so women had to be women. She was told to wear modest clothing, to take a purity pledge, maintain her virginity. None of these are wrong, Klein says. The danger is the shame, quote, deep, long-lasting shame inflicted on young people in these environments. A flirty girl might be referred to as a Mary Magdalene. A young lady who showed too much skin would be brought before the church elders, elders who were all men, of course. And if she didn't know her place and keep her place, it was easy to hand this Jezebel over to eternal perdition. The point was, be a good girl. And a good girl is one who keeps our rules and our expectations. Well, how did Linda Kay respond to this? For all of her youth, she was compliant. She took the pledges, was cast as the Virgin Mary in her church's annual Christmas play, and she kept the rules. Then in her 20s, she started kicking back against all the expectations and the shaming, and in time she left her church altogether. The church drug her through the mud, and her family, including her parents, they were devastated. Klein spoke of the many tearful conversations she had with her parents as they and the entire church mourned over her lost soul. They weren't just sad that she had left the church. They were terrified for her. They felt she was going to hell. Well, the interviewer asked Ms. Klein, What is your relationship to the church now? Do you still practice your faith? Linda Kay answered, and this is what so resonated with me, I still am very much a Christian. I strongly identify with the Christian faith, but I'm gun-shy of the church. I've learned over the years that there are many Christianities, but some of them I can no longer identify with. Her answer is like a giant rock thrown into a pond. So many ripples. I'm still a Christian. I strongly identify with the Christian faith, but I'm gun shy of the church. My uncle Lamar had two hunting dogs when I was a kid. Brothers, German short-haired pointers, beautiful dogs. One named Highball and the other Hobo. Highball was a freak of nature, big, strong, beautiful, full of energy, courageous. He'd flush out dove and quail and rabbits. He was sweet and fun, but he died young, and that that broke everyone's heart. But still, we had Hobo. But what a study in contrast. He was ill-tempered and suspicious, a bit lazy, and worst of all, he was gun-shy. We'd go out for a bird hunt, and after his... After the first shot, Hobo was back at the house under the carport awning like he'd been shot himself. I had the most to lose by his cowardice, of course, since I was the youngest cousin out 
for the hunt, and I didn't own my own shotgun, I was forced into the role of the dog as my older cousins ordered me at gunpoint into the briar patches to flush out the rabbits. Gunshot is the most perfect down-home, deep-south, Midwestern description for someone scared almost to death of something. The gun fires, and though the bullet is not intended for you, the sound is enough to trigger a full-fledged retreat to the carport or the barn or the doghouse. Linda K. Klein, knowingly or not, used it perfectly to describe her aversion to the church. She, like many, she has a deep emotional scar, a trauma that keeps her from running to the thrill of the hunt, so to speak. It forces her to keep her distance. And then there's another phrase she used. I have learned over the years that there are many Christianities, but some of them I can no longer identify with. Many Christianities. Well, at first that just doesn't sound right at all. Many, plural. What happened to the great confession of the book of Ephesians? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Well, on the one hand, it is true. There is but one Christianity. But on the other hand, plurality is true as well because Christianity has multiple variegated expressions. I mean, exactly what kind of Christian are you? Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Reformed, Seventh-day Adventist, Christian Scientist, Unitarian, Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, Charismatic, Snake Handling, Coptic, Byzantine, Anglican, Quaker, Congregational, Restorationist. Today, there are more than 30,000 individual Protestant groups worldwide in about three dozen different traditions. Now, why is this the case? How is it that Christianity has become so splintered? There is wide diversity within Judaism and Islam and Buddhism, but not like the diversity within Christianity. Well, it's largely because the Christian faith is deeply personal and deeply relational. We have the Ten Commandments, but there's no overarching set of commandments. There's no list of pillars or foundations. It's about Jesus a relationship with Jesus. And this simplicity has led to overwhelming diversity of interpretations and a freedom of religious expression that ranges far and wide. And granted, this has led to many abuses within the church. Deep, deep fragmentation. But to some degree, that is the price paid for freedom of conscience. But what happens when a person's relationship with Christ, when his or her conscience comes into conflict with the established faith. I said last Sunday that people leave the institutional church for many reasons. Some leave angry. Some hurt. Some lose faith completely. But some leave to save what faith they have left for the sake of conscience. They go it alone. And they are healthier, happier, more hopeful on the outside than the inside for it. They continue to worship God, continue to cling to Christ, but the church, in their experience, has become a hindrance to faith, not a home. 
what do we do with these people, I asked last week. And then I said, come back next week and I'll pick up right here to answer that question. And lo and behold, here you are. So I guess I have better come up with some sort of answer. So back to that text from last week, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 19, with emphasis on verse 19. Paul instructs Timothy, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Paul was speaking of Two things here, I think, as it relates to faith and conscience. If faith and conscience first aren't in sync, it leads to hypocrisy. When we hate instead of love. When we do unto others before they can do unto us. When we complicate, bloviate, cheat others, or allow the cheating of others to take place when we are tight-fisted and self-centered and unmerciful, unyielding, unforgiving, and unwilling to sacrifice, to bleed, or to surrender, that is not the way of Jesus. It runs our claimed profession of faith aground. Faith is shipwrecked because one's internal guidance, the conscience, does not match what one claims to believe. We cannot take, as I've said many, many times, we cannot take the values and the ethics of Jesus, organize ourselves in the opposite direction and call it Christian, we are left with having no credibility. And now the second thing that I think Paul is saying, what do we do when our conscience will not allow us to hold to faith any longer? The example I used last week was Anne Rice, who made that very public departure from Christianity, who said that she would always be committed to Christ, always be a Christian, but it would be impossible for her to continue to belong to Christianity. She tried, she failed, and she concludes that statement by saying, my conscience will allow nothing else than leaving. What do people like this do, and what do we who remain in the church do about it? Well, some people will change churches, and that is perfectly fine. Did you hear about Charlie and Sue? Why, they're going down to the first church of the Nazarene. I can't believe they would leave us. It happens. Churches change. They grow. They sometimes regress. They refine where they put their emphasis. They change leadership. Conscience will sometimes demand that when that happens, the changes are just too much. And thankfully, there are plenty of choices out there. 30,000 choices, if you believe the statistics I referred to earlier. People can usually find a place to hang their theological hat, and they can usually find a community of faith that they can join and serve and be happy in. As an example, I was born a Baptist. All my family, for the most most part, is Baptist. Now, I no longer consider myself a Baptist. Why? Because I'm smarter? No. I'm more advanced? Absolutely not. Simply, I no longer sign off on the tenets of what they believe. 
For me, they are too narrow, too subjugating of women, too legalistic in their interpretations. They are wonderful people whose influence on me uh, was incalculable. I wouldn't be who I am or where I am without them, but I simply could not stay with them for the sake of conscience. For you, that might be the Catholic Church or the Presbyterians or one of those other 30,000 member denominations. You might have left angry. You might have left hurt. You may have felt like something was being taken away from you when you could no longer call the incubator of your faith home. But what else could you do but to tie the laces of your shoes and walk on down the road? Let us let people go if they must go and let them grow in the direction that the Spirit and their conscience takes them and not condemn others simply because they leave or because they remain or because they don't agree with the way we see things. And then to the other group that leaves. They don't go, they don't go down the street. They go home. It sometimes manifests itself like this. Someone might say to me, Pastor, I'm, I'm really worried about my kids. You know, they were raised in the church, but, but they just won't attend anymore. I, I don't even know if they still believe. Or, I have this friend at work, and I know she used to go to church, but she won't even talk about it now. I don't understand. Or, I found out my neighbor used to be a pastor, or a deacon, or a member of the session, I've talked to him, and I think he still loves God and all, but he is completely uninterested in being a part of any faith community. What should I do? Well, let's read something that Jesus had to say about that very thing. It's John chapter 10, and we join Jesus in a monologue as he talks about himself as the good shepherd. He is comparing his loving, sacrificial, pastoral approach with that of a sheep keeper. And he says, beginning at verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I will sacrifice my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Most commentary agrees that Jesus is speaking of the Gentiles here. He was speaking to Jews, but showing that the fold, the pasture, would be much larger than they could imagine. It would include people who were considered out of bounds, those who were outsiders, who were strangers, maybe even who could be considered enemies. The magnanimity and the grace of God was much wider than the insiders could possibly consider it to be. And even those sheep sleeping far away from the fold, those in a completely different zip code, would be brought in by the Good Shepherd. 
They too would hear his voice. They would know him. He would know them. So what is Jesus saying? Relax. Leave them in my more than capable hands. You may think they are lost, but I know exactly who they are and exactly where they are. And when it appears that one has pulled away from the faith, faith for sake of their conscience, love them, pray for them, support them, but do not judge or badger them. Give them space. It could be that the map that they have been following, the only map that has ever really been provided to them, no longer matches the terrain upon which they are walking. It doesn't make sense any longer. Everything is adrift. It's, it's out of place. And they need some time to figure these things out. So if you believe that God is all good and all powerful and all gracious, then you must believe that He will hold them gently in His hands while they are on whatever journey they are on. As Frederick Buechner says, if God does not have room for doubt then God does not have room for me. God takes our doubts, our questions, our wonderings and our wanderings. He can take those things, even when it seems nobody else can. Alan Jameson is a pastor and a writer from New Zealand. And when speaking of This subject, he likes to use the analogy of a new swimmer. This person who can't swim arrives on the beach and he finds a swim club there, a club that loves everything about the water. And like the novice he is, the new swimmer falls in with this group and they teach him to swim. And he is converted to the ways of the water. So thereafter, he meets with his club regularly. He enjoys them. They enjoy him. His swimming proficiency improves. He gets stronger all the time. And later, quote, maybe years later, Jameson says, the swimmer feels this deep stirring within himself to swim into more dangerous waters, water on the other side of the buoys, water that the other members of his club have never explored. And so he brings up the idea of exploring further, of even using scuba equipment, of launching far out to see where the oxygen tanks and the wetsuits could take them. Well, what happens? His swimming club rebukes him, shames him, tells him how dangerous such thinking is, how such nonsense should be forgotten. So this swimmer will do a number of things. He will suppress those feelings and he will die a little bit day by day to stay in the good graces of his community. Or he will quit the club altogether, demoralized, alone. Or maybe finding no one who will go with him, he will plunge into those dangerous deep waters all alone for the sake of being true to himself and to his calling and conscience. 
Dr. James Hollis, who really is a genius, makes this observation. In the end, life is very simple. If you do what is wrong for you, it will be wrong for you. If you do what is right for you, it will be right for you. A child knows this, an animal as well, and we don't. Why? I suspect this disconnect arises because we feel obliged to adapt to the crowd. So I offer this idea. You are here to be yourself, not selfishly injuring others, but to be that possible person God intended you to be. You are equipped with powerful guidance and corrective systems. Your feelings, your energies, your enthusiasms, your intuitions, your gut, your conscience. It will be up to you to find the courage to live this out as best you can in a world that may or may not cooperate. We get only one shot at this. And we are called to show up as our own flawed, clunky, awkward selves, but as ourselves. That is both our summons and our gift. End of quote. If that means going alone for a season of life, then so be it. For not all who wander are lost. Not all who are alone are lonely. And we can never be too far from the grace of God. Amen.